what's wrong with using a love potion on someone? Oh, uh, huh. And may, maybe they have rights over their mind that you're violating. <laughs> like, really? Actually, it might be it might be violating the ownership of their body, right? Because they didn't they didn't choose to ingest that substance, right? Okay. Well, okay. So suppose let take a hypothetical. Okay, so Dean is this really suave and attractive person who uses a variety of physical aids to enhance his attractiveness. Okay, so he's got a nice blazer or whatever, and re wears really good cologne and <laughs> he has this effect on women that's just so overwhelming where they cannot uh they're they're they're, they're yeah no one no one can yeah okay so his charm yeah i mean this like, happens to me a lot right okay so let's say that i'm having that effect <laughs> on you right now okay is it, it, it have i violated your rights by simply being irresistible uh no would be my intuition <laughs> Um, yeah, so my thing, how is this different for the love potion? I don't know, like the love potion yeah, does involve right. putting, putting something else into the person's body. So like it might be a violation of their bodily autonomy. Um, but you know, you might think, oh, like this nice cologne that I'm wearing, like the chemicals go into your nose. <laughs> right. Like um, you know, may, maybe it's sort of like, um, maybe you have a right to not have abnormal things put into your body or something like maybe you should just like sort of like the normal stuff that's constantly happening you don't have a right against like because you're constantly smelling stuff like but is that so. really a plausible view i mean does anyone think that love at first sight really would be an instance of a rights violation if it was done by someone who was aware of the fact that they had the charming uh the charmingness that they have like, is there ever a point where the cologne would get too sexy? Could I maybe suggest uh, something? Sorry, go, go ahead. Um, go ahead. So, so suppose that anything that they wouldn't consent to if they knew that that was the reason that they were attracted to you is something that's a rights violation. So in the case of the love potion, they wouldn't consent to having a love potion used against them, but they would consent to being attracted to you because of your cologne. Suppose that that's what explains the difference. What do you think about that? Yeah, so yeah. I don't know if anyone has in advance a right to knowledge of things which would change their romantic decision making, because in general, that probably is something that like we just don't think is at stake in, in, in the typical cases. So like imagine someone, I don't know, let, let, there's an office romance, but the girl doesn't know yet that the guy has um, like a uh a sexual preoccupation for this woman and he spends a lot of time uh you know looking through her facebook feeds and doing all kinds of indecent things thinking about her okay now aware like a prior awareness of that would very it's very possible that that would change her decision about whether to continue the rapport that they have with each other and that will ultimately lead to a romance um but even so um it doesn't seem like he's violating her rights or her consent. So I don't think anyone has a right to not have their like preferences violated. I don't informed consent can't mean something like that um, in the context yeah. of romantic relationships. I don't think. So there's gotta be some kind of impingement on your body. Right. But I mean, I was going to say like, well, you know, you don't, 
you don't have the right to veto the cologne, right? Like, so normal people would not object to your wearing a really nice cologne, but what if there's somebody who does object? Like then like, they really don't like people wearing cologne. <laughs> um, then can they demand that nobody wear cologne? Like, I guess I would say no, right? Um, That's a really good point. Yeah. Um, so I, I don't know, like, um, but I mean, one thought is, um, well, like when you go outside, you're sort of like um, assuming the risk of normal stuff happening. <laughs> so like, given that people wear perfume or cologne, just like you should just expect that to happen. And then you just like, you, you don't really have a complaint if you go near people, if they're just doing the normal thing that's commonly done in our society. Well, but can I, can I yeah. uh, interject before you continue developing that point? I just want to make this, so like, I think everything you're going to say here is perfectly reasonable in, you know, the general range of cases. But when it comes to love, I think part of what we idealize, at least in our culture about love, is that it's supposed to be something that's out of the course of the ordinary. Like in the best possible case, what love would mean to, according to um, our popular view is love at first sight, or maybe it would be falling in love, which emphasizes the involuntary nature of it, um, of the attraction at least that leads to the love um, and, and the initial things that kind of entice you into it. So I don't know. I mean, I think, is it really true that uh, anyone really, um, when you're talking about what would happen in the ordinary course of events, but like, let's say there is this incredibly beautiful uh, like seven foot tall guy who's just a an absolute overwhelming charmer. And if a woman were to encounter him, she would be totally hopeless, um, but to, to fall in love with him pretty much instantly. Like, it, does she have a right not to be exposed to the sight of that person? Does she have a right not to smell the pheromones of that person or whatever? Like, yeah, I mean, my, um, intuition, I guess, is um, no, uh, partly because like he's just acting normally, like it's not his fault that he's so attractive, right? Um, you know, this is a problem that I often have, you know, I'm just so amazingly good looking, you know, and like, it's not my fault, you know, but with the love potion example, it looks like you're deliberately doing this. Right. Also, by the way, like I assume the love potion is sort of supposed to be this thing that takes away your free will or something like, you know, whatever, like, you know, it's just like overpowering in a way that in reality, mere physical appearance never is. <laughs> well, let's say, okay, so, so let's say that physical appearance actually is that way, though, for, for a certain person who is so attractive, that that is in fact the case. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, Could it impose... Could it impose like a differential burden? Like, it makes sense to me. I guess my intuitive reaction is that, you know, if all it takes is for this person to make a slightly different decision, like, oh, I'm going to go in 10 minutes later than I normally would so that I avoid this person. Seems like you could have moral obligations of that sort to like take on a certain burden to yourself to avoid placing this burden on this other person to respect their interests or their welfare in some kind of way. So even but if it wasn't yeah, an unlimited it, burden that you'd have to take on yourself. So I, I see what you mean, but I guess my my reaction to that is is it really true that it's in the interest of that person not to fall in love with this extraordinarily charming 
person. I mean, I think a lot of people think love is a is a basic human good. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, I guess my response to that would be uh, it kind of depends on the person, right? Like if you know that uh, it's in some sense going to be irrational for this or in the right kind of sense, it's going to be irrational for this person. Like their dream is, you know, I want, I don't want to settle down. I don't want to have a family. I want to be dedicated to my career. There's going to be something that you can do that will interfere with that, but that will also change their mind so that they will now prefer, uh, this al alternate course it seems to me you're still like disrupting what their plan for themselves had been. So there's some sort of like interference with self-actualization that seems to be a problem there. So it sounds like something, there's something there happening with, um, a person has ideal preferences and it would be wrong perhaps to subvert someone's ideal preferences or to change their ideals, um, before yeah. they decide to change them based on some kind of like internally prompted process. I might that, say authentic rather than ideal, but okay. something in that neighborhood, yeah. Well, so then th this is a thought that I had. So I, I'll call this hypothetical hot for Hitler, okay? So Judy is a social justice warrior uh, studying. She's, she's getting a graduate degree in education. She has very strong political commitments. Um, and one day she goes to Argentina um just with some friends and she encounters hitler in hiding but she doesn't know him as hitler immediately okay um but he's just this incredibly attractive man one thing that she just didn't know about him was that that he was suave and he had this this um this just magnetic You're so getting canceled this magnetic sexual charisma got a great okay? hugo boss uh collection of nice coats Exactly. Right. So let's say that happens. Right. And he exerts this overwhelming romantic influence on Judy and Judy just finds out the middle of this conversation um, by the like, like, by the way, who are you? And he says, oh, well, I made off Hitler. But at that point, she can't she can't help it. It's like that doesn't turn her off because it can't. It, she, she's she's already been captivated by this by this charmer. Okay, well, so supposing that, that 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 occurred, and then this slowly develops into a night of passionate lovemaking. My question to you is: um, Did if Hitler? That were the hypothetical stops. Please say yes. <laughs> yes, yes. Okay. So, so supposing that happens, did Hitler do something wrong? Like, I, I admit that, like, <laughs> like Hitler's a bad person. It seems to me for other. Yeah, people. I'm gonna I'm but, gonna but, quote but, you on this. But, did Hitler but, do something wrong? <laughs> but, but I'm saying, in you know, like. Insofar as what happened within the context of this evening, it seems to me that Hitler did nothing wrong. Was there a deception <laughs> that's like morally culpable? <laughs> uh, I feel like dialectically, I don't want to be on the side of, de of defending Hitler in any way. Um, yeah. <laughs> I think my, in my intuition in that case would be uh, there's certain kinds of like respectable um, attitudes or desires that people can have and other ones that are like less respectable. So like, I don't think you necessarily have to reveal to an anti-Semite that you're Jewish, if that's gonna like interfere with what would otherwise be in some, you know, like a valuable or, or good relationship with them. Uh, but <clears throat> so, <laughs> I mean, uh, if if this person didn't like Hitler for 
bad reasons. I don't know. There's obviously like good reasons to to not like Hitler. I'll I'll go out <laughs> on that branch. Uh, <laughs> I can think of a few. Just a few. Um uh so there's probably are, like sufficient saying, reason to consider it. Okay, but uh, are are you saying that basically because it's like objectively uh undesirable that a person would have a preference to date Hitler or have sex with Hitler that therefore for Hitler to exercise his romantic charm on this woman uh Hitler would be doing an, like additional, them. an additional yeah. immoral deed because he's being he's he's romantically um enticing and entangling someone who uh despite yeah, the fact you, that you shouldn't fall in love with Hitler and he's causing them to fall in love with Hitler it, so, so do you is that I really guess. your intuition you think that that's immoral like it's an uh, thing. i don't know i i guess i have uh uh my my like inner model of hitler is basically like you know you're an abusive person but you can get someone to fall in love with you but that this isn't going to be like an actual relationship between whole people that are like you know two souls as Let's one or whatever that Okay, so let's suppose he's going to be a good boyfriend. Good boyfriend, Hitler. He's going to be a good boyfriend. He's he's very good for her, and that's what uh, scares her about it. I think if as long as he's morally reformed, I don't have a problem with it. I guess. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I'm not so I'm not sure our intuitions are reliable about super unrealistic cases. As I say, I think there are more realistic <laughs> cases that are sort of raising similar issues, right? Like. But, you know, like, so sometimes people talk about um, if you're like a transgender person and then you're going out on dates with people, do you have to disclose that immediately? Um, because, you know, like that, people might want to not go out with you at all if if you're trans, right? Or, you know, like you have to disclose it at some point, but maybe you can wait until they see how charming you are or something like that. And yeah, I guess my feeling is you don't have to disclose it immediately. You probably have to disclose it before you have sex. Uh, and, you know, like, and why? Well, I don't know. Partly because it's like you sort of want the the you want the person to see the sort of like other relevant aspects of you, which they won't see, and it's not that much of a burden. But it sounds like to some, me yeah. oh, okay. Well, so okay, I I think the only reason why that would engage any intuitions that we have, though, is if what's going on there is um the the other you you know it by a reasonable person's standard that the other person's decision um to have sex might change if they're made aware of that knowledge right so like i don't have to tell her that i have a penis if she knows me to be a heterosexual male um and i i, I think the only reason she would need to know differently is if that knowledge was going to change um her uh her willingness to continue the encounter and so the reason why I don't think that's analogous to the love potion case is that um, in the love potion case, it's already known that um, the person, when they're under the influence of love potion, is going to um, enjoy it. You're not. There's no discontinuity in the, in what the person is going to be um, uh, amenable to. I, I don't think that's a sufficient condition because there's all sorts of things you could tell someone that could be truthful that could get them to change their mind. Like you could just bring up like, hey, you know, I just uh, did something in the bathroom, right? Like you could talk about <laughs> biological processes yeah. that are happening. I had diarrhea. That, yeah, it was, you know, explosive, <laughs> oh, <gross. laughs> violent, right? But 
you could give these kinds of like true descriptions and they're going to influence you, you could have the same way like, I mean, I'm, I'm pretty sure that like anyone could turn off any date if you just like you know said all of the worst things about yourself up front <laughs> everything bad about me that list you still want to go out and people will go no but i think there's like a social coordination happening here with regard to like expectations of like how truthful are we going to be there's some sort of like mutual consent happening where people are like navigating a social space and they know that like you're putting your best foot forward you might not always dress like this you might not always look like this right. uh so i think it's it's not necessarily like a priori this is this is like the most morally just this is the only morally just way to do it i think part of it is just like actual convention conventions of politeness and honesty seems right so so dr okay. humor can yeah. can you give me maybe if i make it a percentage thing like how effective does the cologne have to get before it's immoral <laughs> to use it so let's say uh -huh. it's 90% effective or maybe it starts out like dean is figuring out what works and so he's experimenting and currently he's at a 50% effectiveness rate okay so yeah, I, I, imagining it ups one percent every day for the next five years like at what point did he start to i don't know like rape the women or do something yeah, so, no i cannot give you the number speaking um, of gradients i had a question about sorty's paradox i was curious about yeah. i think um asha has had um her hand up for a while there yeah um well thanks so I, I i thought one thing uh i thought this was a really interesting discussion but one thing you said uh professor humor that i thought was interesting was you said that this was a case in which um we maybe shouldn't trust our intuitions because it's so unrealistic um and that's something that like i feel like i run into all the time because when in philosophical discussions people oftentimes modify thought experiments to the point of um losing all realism and uh I was wondering if you had like a rule of thumb for like, given that your 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 method is so dependent upon intuitions, how do you know when an intuition can be trusted versus not trusted? Yeah, I mean, um, like so, so sometimes you hear about the unrealistic case, but you still have a firm intuition about it. Like, you know, oh, the, there's a case that involves time travel or whatever, <laughs> like time travel is metaphysically impossible. So that's super unrealistic, um, but that might not be relevant, right? Like that might be an unrealism that doesn't matter, but like there are other times when they give the unrealistic case and actually, you know, you don't have clear intuitions about it, right? And then I think, you know, maybe we should, I don't know, try, try to get a case that's closer, closer to what really happens if possible. I guess. Um, I guess, and yeah, another thing I think is, well, the importance of the question partly depends on how realistic the the scenario is, right? Because, like, you know, like you're not going to run into Hitler, so like, we, why do we need to resolve that? And, like, and there aren't any love potions, so why do we need to resolve that one? <laughs> like, um, but there are cases that are in the vicinity that are realistic. So, like, you know, like one reason we're talking about the more realistic cases is like things like this are going to happen and like you know um, are you saying yeah. that knowing the that like how likely it is to happen itself is an indication of how trustworthy your intuitions are or are you saying it just tells us about whether we should prioritize learning more about that topic yeah um i mean it's a little of both right so i mean one 
yeah, like the more realistic cases are a higher priority to think about, but also um, we're probably going to be better at thinking about them because um, like, you know, in our lives, we're sort of like, you know, our, our brain adjusts to thinking about certain kinds of scenarios. And like, if this is the first time you've ever thought about this particular weird scenario, you may not be good at thinking about it. And like, so your intuitions might be less reliable. You might, you're also like maybe less likely to have intuitions or they're more likely to change. Do you think this is potentially a, um, creating a vulnerability in your chain of reasoning on deontology? Because it seems to me a big part of what motivates moderate deontology is taking utilitarianism and then just trying to apply it in very unusual cases and then saying, well, because it's counterintuitive in those unusual cases, therefore we know that deontology is unreliable. Uh, utilitarianism is, we know that utilitarianism is false, right? Um, yeah. Uh, so, you know, you think about some of the cases, I don't find them so weird. Okay, so like there's the organ harvesting case. Like, well, I mean, there are a lot of people who need organ transplants. Like, it's unlikely that somebody would be considering doing this. But that's only because it seems so horrible. <laughs> like, it's not a thing that a person would even entertain doing. Right. But like, okay. Um, now you might think, well, there's the unrealistic part of like the one person being compatible with the five. Like, I, yeah, that's very unlikely because, right. But like, Actually, I'm not. I would argue that a love potion is more likely than one person happening at a given hospital in the normal course of, of events uh, to ever be compatible with those other people. And then for there also to be a doctor who was even making that consideration of, of trying yeah. to deliberate about who to use. But like I mean, if you looked at just strictly speaking, how likely is that to happen compared to someone one day figuring out a way to just, I don't know, like the CIA already puts freshly baked bread in the room when they interrogate some people and they find that <laughs> it has like an over average effect on their, their, their like openness yeah. to the conversation. Would, Surely so, there's going to be a point where you can. Yeah. So what do you think? Um, no, I mean, so like the, the unrealism of a doctor seriously considering doing the action is not relevant because the reason that's unrealistic is that it's a horrible action. That is every doctor would have the same intuitions that we do when thinking about the case. Okay. But you know, like if the one guy matching the five other people, well, you know, what if we specify that? Yeah. I mean, they're not all in the same hospital actually. Like there's just five people around the country. And right. And like, you know, the doctor has access to the database of all the people who need organ transplants. So, um, you know, and like there's this one guy who's blood type O or whatever. So, and then you can find five people that this guy matches. So, yeah. Maybe there's something there. I mean, there's obviously like tr uh, the transportation problem and getting coordinating like a, do a donation across that many doctors. And then you have to involve other people. And yeah. I mean, I know you were saying, that the like the the conscience of the doctor is not what's relevant here but i mean there are other reasons why the doctor yeah. wouldn't be likely to entertain no, this. i mean there's, there's a professional liability and there's uh oh yeah uh, no so he's going to make it look like the guy died accidentally and he knows the guy's already an organ donor so. and, okay well do, but does he know he's going to be able to engineer the circumstances favorably to that goal like that no one's ever going to find out otherwise because that seems pretty unlikely you'd have to have a really good conspiracy of events and factors okay. to make that so that you know, would have very high confidence that it wouldn't happen. Well, I mean, 
Yeah, so there would be a risk of being caught. And then obviously you go to prison and lose your medical license. So then you can't save any more lives. But still, like you save five lives. I mean, seems like it's worth the risk, right? And like, you know, these are five people who would would be dead. Like, so anyway. Um, I'm just saying for it for it to transpire that there were all of these factors set in exactly the right setting that they'd need to be for the doctor to make that decision is pretty unlikely. So why, and, yeah. and by the way, this is a little bit disingenuous, I think, because you've already written articles where the, where the arguments that you made against utilitarianism were way more extravagant than this. Like you have the one where, um, I don't know, there's like the Super Bowl is happening and there is yeah. this, um, uh, someone gets entangled in all of the like broadcasting equipment. And so he's getting yeah, yeah. electrocuted, but, the only way to stop the broadcast would be to uh, yeah, yeah. extricate him from the tangle of wires. Like, like, do you think yeah. is your view basically that we should just reserve judgment about that case because it's so unlikely? Yeah, uh, yeah. So that case came from Scanlon, by the way. I can't take credit for this, but um, yeah. So you, know, you think about that, and you're like, yeah, why are we why are we talking about that case? Because that's not going to happen. <laughs> like that's never gonna happen. Okay, yeah. So that like that was the first thing that I was saying. <laughs> like, well, because it has a specific theoretical significance, right? It's like because there's an intuitive verdict which implies that somebody a specific theory that people are advocating is wrong. And like you know the thing that you were saying about the love potion, it just wasn't clear to me. What is there any theoretical? <laughs> Like, yeah. is there any theory this so, is targeting that? But sure, it's it, it's it's an aspect of a larger theory about love that says that it's. I, I mean, I I don't know if I like. It's a little weird that you're saying that because I don't really think you you are the kind of person who insists that other people have theories. Um, so I'm a little. Yeah, confused, no, I was just. But like, it is true point, that I. I mean, I guess you could incorporate my views on the love potion into a larger theory about the ethics of uh, dating and attraction. Uh, oh, did we? Can you guys hear me? I, I can hear you. I can hear I, you. Uh, looks like he's frozen now. Yeah. Oh. He looks frozen to me. Okay, hold on. Let me uh, send him an email. Is he, or is he saying anything in the chat, maybe? No. Um, it might just, Darren might have just dropped for a second. So I'll just give him a second to connect back. Yeah, I'll give him a second. Um, it'll let him know. One thing that in the reasoning about the love potion that strikes me as particularly unrealistic is not even so much the love potion hypothetical as much as the hypothetical of the really, really attractive blazer. Like, like if you imagine like the really, really attractive blazer that's so attractive that one couldn't resist it, like I think that maybe isn't reliable with our intuitions because it's so difficult to even conceive of such a thing. And that's so foreign in terms of how blazers tend to function psychologically. So you... Asha, you, you say that, and that's why I actually had a, um, so I, I could do the same thing that Michael Humor was doing there with the love potion, which is just making it more like finding a way to re-engineer the hypothetical. So it's a thing that actually is more likely to occur one day. And so here's an example. So, you know, a lot of people think artificial intelligence is going to figure out how to do really, really impressive things. What is stopping an AI dating app? from being just so unbelievably good at what it does that it connects people who have preferences in such a way that um, 
you know, somebody is it, like, it finds, it sweeps through all the publicly available information and all this user data. And it finds that one person in South Korea who out of, you know, the like 15 billion people who live in the year 2050 uh, is going to be uh, unable to resist the charms of some random dude in, in New Jersey. Like compatibility index or something. Yeah, some really, really good dating algorithm, okay? And let's say it does this and maybe maybe there's a dark web version of it where instead of a dating app, it just like lets you know who that person is beforehand. So she didn't sign up for the dating app, but like it's the same algorithm, but it tells this guy, well, can he book a flight to South Korea and, and you know, hook up with her at the bar? But, but I would say um, it's a good thought experiment, but I would say that even still, like even if you imagine the best AI in the world, in the, but we're still like um, limited to the real world, like there's just so much randomness in romantic relationships that even still it wouldn't be reliable. And like, whereas in, when we envision this love potion, we're kind of envisioning it as something that like really targets like mechanically the mechanism of falling in love such that it is reliable. Like, I, I just really believe that, like, even if you had an AI that was, like, perfect in, in this dimension, it just still wouldn't work because a we lot could of... could modify, I think, the hypothetical to just be about, like, a one-night stand so you don't have to worry about this, like, you know, long-term stability. Like, is it okay to lie to someone to tell them that you're, like, a, a jet pilot, a fighter pilot, if that's <laughs> going to get them to sleep with you, if you go in, like... You have what you're you're otherwise poor, but you have one like really really fancy outfit, and you that that gets Ladies you into like, like a really really fancy yeah. club, and people are like really impressed by the prestige, right? Like you have the drip, right? That that and like, like there is actually like, do respond to that kind of stuff. There's clearly like a line, but like there, there is like rape by deception that like legally is there. I think like more people agree is there too. Like there's like this horrible case where someone basically called another person. Just like, hey, like show up to this hotel, blindfold yourself. I want to do something like really kinky, basically. And then it actually occurred and the person was charged, right? I think like everyone's like, yes, that would be great. Like that clearly was wrong. So clearly like there is a threshold where you pass to too much deception and it is actually rape. Um, so I think it's just like a matter of where you feel like that line is. Cameron, in that case though, I don't think you're talking about a difference of degree and deception. It's not like that's more deceiving than the other cases. Instead, I think this is a difference of kind because this is a case where you are saying something that's not true, okay? You're telling them something that is in fact factually incorrect about who you are. Whereas in the case of the cologne, it's just a really, or my love potion cologne, it's a really, really so effective the other examples. Yeah, yeah, no, but the other examples are things like, oh, you have a really nice suit and you kind of like by implication are telling someone like, hey, I'm really wealthy or like, you literally say I'm giving you an idea of the distribution of my lifestyle. And, you know, based on this single point, I know how you're going to make this inference. I'm relying on the fact that that inference is false. <laughs> Hello, yeah. Hi, Dr. Humor. I'm sorry that we lost you for a moment there. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Lost them again. Do you oh. guys think it's my Wi-Fi by any chance? Oh, it, oh no, no, we got him. Probably not. Yeah, sorry. My internet that. connection is unstable. Oh, I don't know. okay. Um, uh, everyone else uh, is getting clear, so I think it's probably yeah. Dr. Humor's end. Dr. Humor, do you uh, could you do you have any other Wi-Fi options, or could you connect to a personal hotspot on your phone, maybe? Or uh, uh, 
I'm going to see if I can connect a cable. Okay. To the router. Uh, let's see. Thank you so much again for doing this. Like I, I'm just, I've been incredibly riveted by the discussion so far. I think it's the most extraordinary thing ever that you agreed to talk to us. Like we're just some random people who read your <laughs> stuff and. This is not the most extraordinary thing ever. There are more extraordinary <laughs> things. <laughs> well, I have, to, uh, from my perspective anyway, like it just seems, it, it really is amazing to me that you're open to talking to people. And, and uh, you know, because my experience, a lot of the philosophy faculty at Vanderbilt are kind of just checked out and would will hardly even meet you for office hours. I actually had an email exchange with one of these professors at my school who, who like implied that they were a little bit annoyed that I wanted to meet their office hours because they, um, because I'm not in their class and they were just a little bit like, mm, like you're kind of inconveniencing me, um, I see. but I'll be there if I have to be. So I see. Well, I mean, um, you know, like I, I try to get more students to come to my office hours and most of them don't want to come. <laughs> so I might have the uh, mirror image problem that you have. So why is that? Why are you so open to speak engaging engaging with the general audience for one thing, and well, then I mean, yeah yeah I yeah, like philosophy. That? You know, I became a philosopher because I like to talk about philosophy. <laughs> and I don't I don't quite know why some people don't. Well, I I guess uh, I guess like you know some professors are like no, it's just going to be boring because these you know students like they they're too elementary or something like, you know, they're not familiar with the latest literature or something, which is what I'm thinking about. Like that might be the reason, but um, uh, I like the big questions more than the small questions that are being discussed in the academic literature. <laughs> in the academic literature, there's like, you know, people arguing about um, particular moves that somebody just made in the dialectic, which is just not that much fun, you know, not that much fun to talk about. So, um, Anyway, yeah, like, um, I don't know, like I get, I get invitations to do podcasts and interviews and stuff in email, like pretty frequently. And, you know, first I was like, I don't know, do I want to do these? Like, this could be some trouble, but then I just decided, I don't know, I'm not, I'm just going to like do them all. <laughs> <Whatever. laughs> wow. This gonna be standards. <laughs> this going to be exciting. Yeah, no, this is going to be a regular thing. If you if you're serious about that, you you should be careful because you're going to be getting some emails. Um, yeah, that's true. Well, uh, if I get too many, <laughs> if I get more than one per week, you know, from from all the people, then I'll probably cut back. All right. Well, in the interest of so, let's get back into philosophy in that case. So the um, I, I think Asha, were you going to say something actually? I just want to ask a real quick question. Um, do you know any um, like super interesting philosopher academics who um, have a similar philosophy to you about like being willing to have these kinds of conversations? Like, is there someone else that like, you know, if you think we emailed them or something like that, they'd be they'd be on board and it would be fun? Uh, I'm not sure. I mean, I guess I guess it would look for people who've done a lot of podcasts or something. Um, you know, like if if you like economists, uh, I bet you know Brian Kaplan would probably talk to you um, about economics or politics stuff. Um, and you know, uh, you know, like I think Jason Brennan would be fun, but I don't know if he's open to it or not. So, well, maybe I will sort of name drop you 
and Brian Kaplan and say like they've done stuff with us so maybe you will do it with us too like I don't know do you guys see each other as like a trio I think you're kind of a trifecta of like libertarian philosophers and how do you feel about that characterization yeah I mean I don't know there's a lot of libertarian philosophers actually oh you might try David Friedman because he likes talking to people a lot all right there's going to be a speaker series and i hope everyone who's currently on this call will be there um <laughs> I don't know all enough right. about economics okay fair enough okay so all right i want to keep going though uh and and of course we're on your time so you can stop me at any at any moment uh at your convenience but the next thing that i would like to get into is uh i told so jay on this call jay has been uh preparing like rocky balboa basically for this moment and is planning on, I, I told him it, he's had the last month to prepare and he has been basically trying to achieve so much preparation that uh, he will almost certainly embarrass and corner you. Um, so prepare for, for, uh, for that. So Jay, what do you have to say about Michael <laughs> Humor and his views on moral realism? You're really raising expectations for this guy. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, he just told me a month ago we were having a debate. I've done very little <laughs> in terms of preparation. Uh, I just want to have a few questions. Uh, Percy is known for his uh, over, over ambitious introductions, so don't take that too seriously. Uh, but I just, had, I just wanted to give a few questions about your view on moral real, realism. I know you're like a, a non-naturalist, so I kind of had... Um, I guess the common, common kinds of questions people have people, people have uh, against non-naturalism. Just curious what your answers are. Um, but before I do that, I just want to give you, can you like just maybe describe your view on metaethics uh, kind of briefly before I do that? Um, I'm an ethical intuitionist. I have a, a great book called Ethical Intuitionism. And uh, what's, the, what's the intuitionist view? Um, yeah, I mean, one thing is there are objective moral truths or evaluative truths. So there are facts about what's good and bad, right and wrong. Uh, another point is that they're not reducible. So like, you know, the, the facts, the fact that something is good, uh, that can't be explained using non-evaluative terms. You can't explain what it is to be good, you know, using terms other than good or right or should or some evaluative terms like that. Um, and then uh, another point is like about um, our knowledge of the evaluative truths. Um, all of our knowledge of evaluative truths comes from something called ethical intuition. And um, ethical intuitions are mental states in which um, when you think about some evaluative question, something seems correct to you. So, um, you know, like you think about the organ harvesting example and for most, to most people, Oh yeah, so James has a copy of Ethical Intuitionism. So um, yeah, so most people when they think about this, you know, organ harvesting example, they just have the a strong reaction that it seems wrong to kill the healthy patient. So that is an ethical intuition, right? So where it's it seems to you a certain way and not as a result of going through some argument. And then you know you, you can use these intuitions to construct as the premises um, from which to construct ethical arguments about less clear issues. Okay, cool. Um, so yeah, one of the questions I had, which I'm sure you've thought about before, <laughs> concerns what's what's called like moral supervenience. Just the idea is that like um, 
if all of the non-moral facts are the same and like different cases or different worlds or something, then all the moral facts must be the same as well or something like that. Uh, you could correct me if I give a bad interpretation of that. Um, but it seems like moral supervenience is a conceptual truth. Like if somebody denies superven moral supervenience, uh, it seems like they're just making some kind of, they're confused in some way. But it's not clear on non-naturalism why it would be a conceptual truth that the moral supervenes on the non-moral. Like there's no, it's not clear why in all possible worlds, uh, um, if the moral facts are a certain way, that, or if the non-moral facts are a certain way, the moral facts have to be a certain way. So I'm just curious, do you have an explanation of the conceptual truth of supervenience maybe you don't even believe in that but yeah uh i mean so first i'm not sure it's a conceptual truth as opposed to some other kind of truth so um i think it's a necessary truth um but then you know like if you ask okay well why is that necessarily true like i just don't think this needs explanation <laughs> like it strikes me as obvious on its face so like like, I don't think it's weird that moral facts supervene on um, descriptive facts, because I think that's just in, intuitive, intuitively obvious. Like, so like, I'm just not sure that it needs an explanation. Um, but, you know, so, you know, like, um, there are some other examples of things supervening, you know, like um, semantic facts supervene on non-semantic facts. So that you know, facts about what something means are determined by other facts. Like, okay, like that's just obvious, but it, that's not like a weird thing, like a weird, surprising thing that we now need to explain, unless somebody can explain why it's weird, right? Yeah, but it seems like in that case, um, semantic facts they just are constituted by uh non-semantic facts maybe about like the way people the ideas of people heads or something like that those are what determines semantic facts but i don't you don't think that moral facts are constituted by non-moral facts right so that, uh i mean not not really sure what you mean by constituted by so it's true that like the the non-semantic facts makes make the semantic facts be the case like, you know, there are other things that make it the case that this word means this. I'm not sure if that's a constitutive relation. Um, here, here's another example. Like there are, there are logical facts about the logical relations between propositions, or I guess, I don't know, logical relations between sentences, because it will make it easier for me to say the following thing, that the logical facts about sentences supervene on the semantic truths about them. This isn't like a, some weird thing that, you know that it's not like a weird surprise or whatever so somebody asked to explain why that's the case i feel like i just don't need an explanation because it's just kind of self-evident so can you say so the you said the logical relation between between yeah, sentences like, yeah you know like a sentence entails or doesn't entail another sentence contradicts or doesn't contradict or is consistent or not consistent with another sentence and that supervenes on the meanings of the sentences. Um, so you don't think there's a deeper explanation of that or maybe you do think there is one. Um, yeah, I mean, 
I, I don't know, maybe somebody can, maybe someone can come up with a deeper explanation, but it's like, I don't feel like it's a surprising or weird fact. So like, I don't on the face of it feel like I need an explanation. Well, it seems like for any, um, for any logical truths, just to deny them would entail some kind of contradiction. Um, so you might think there's like certain laws of thought or just constraints on how we think. And when we are clear about what those laws or constraints are, we can uh, come to learn logical truths, but that doesn't seem to be the case with um, moral knowledge. Like, I don't think if somebody denies a moral truth, they're uh, committing a, to a contradiction. I mean, I think you're answering another question, which might be, how do we know logical truths? Um, although, I mean, that like, that didn't exactly answer that, though, because you're just sort of assuming that we know the basic laws of logic. So then we just ask how we know those. Yeah, so I think the point is, once we, assuming we know logical truths, <laughs> then we know that they're um, like logically necessary. They, uh, the same logical truths apply in every possible world. And so once you have that, it seems like you can have an explanation for why there's, I don't know, logical truths about sentences supervening on their meaning or something like that. If you're just appealing to the, the logically necessary logical truths themselves, maybe in combination with facts about the semantic nature of sentences, you can like derive the logical truths about the sentences. I mean, you know, you could say, well, if you have the basic ethical truths, you know, then, and you know, you combine the basic ethical principles with the descriptive facts, then you can derive the ethical um, verdicts, right? But I mean, I don't really see how that's different. Uh, but but also, like, I don't think either of these things is weird on the face of it. So, like, I don't like I don't see what the problem is that needs to be solved in the first place. Yeah, right. Like, is there a problem? Well, I think I think for for me at least, um, there should be an explanation for why some group of facts supervene on some other group of facts. Um. So I think you, you can give one in the case of uh, like semantic truths supervening on non-semantic truths or... I mean, not, not everything needs an explanation, right? No, it's not everything, but it seems like <laughs> in cases of supervenience, so like, it's like there should be one. Like, well, well I, mean, I don't have a position on whether everything should be explained. I'm agnostic on that. Yeah, well, you know, not, not unless you want an infinite regress. <laughs> And even even with the infinite regress, I think maybe you, you still don't have an explanation. So, right. Um, so, uh, you know, or um, well, okay. So, you know, think about well, I don't know what what things need an explanation. I guess, like my initial inclination would be to say things that are surprising need an explanation, or like things that you wouldn't have thought would be the case unless there was an explanation. Yeah, I think I think if we stipulate that or if we accept that moral facts can't be reduced to non-moral facts or any kind of moral fact, any kind of fact can be reduced to other kinds of facts, it would be surprising if necessarily they supervene on on those other facts. Is it surprising though? I I feel like there's a parallel um, 
between like mathematical facts and physical facts. It seems like for any like coherent world, you could have some sort of mathematical description or some sort of union of fragments of mathematical descriptions. And the mathematical facts aren't like constituted by or determined by any of the physical facts, at least if you're a based mathematical Platonist. Um, but you'd still have this supervenience where your mathematical descriptions, your mathematical facts can't differ at a world or the mathematical sentences that are true won't differ in a world without the underlying physical facts being different as well. It seems like there's a confusion between like the truth, which is like this sort of thing is wrong. And then like applying that truth to a particular state of affairs. So like the state of affairs varies, but because the like moral truths are necessary, like your moral values won't differ unless the thing that you're, or the moral evaluation in a state of affairs won't differ unless the state of affairs differs. This just seems like obvious. I'm not sure what the, yeah. what the yeah, I mean, is. Yeah, maybe the, yeah, so maybe the, the explanation for why the moral properties of a particular thing supervene on its descriptive properties is that there are some necessary moral principles, right? Like, I mean, pain is pain is bad or something, right? Uh, that's a necessary truth. And so like, yeah, everything that's equally painful is going to have that amount of badness or something, right? And, and you know, that might not be the correct principle. The correct principle might be some more complicated thing, right? And whatever, right? you know, undeserved pain or something like that. But anyway, whatever the correct principles are of ethics, they're going to be necessary truths. So. Yeah, I, mean, I guess, yeah, you could say, you could, you could, that, that could be an explanation. Right? You could say that there are necessarily true moral principles, and then you combine those with, they, they tell you about, they like, you can derive the moral truths about particular cases once you combine those with the facts about those particular cases. Um, I think that makes sense. I think I was, I'm just suspicious of the idea that there's necessary moral principles because you probably don't mean like logically necessary. I mean, maybe you do, but I doubt that. <laughs> so there's like another like sense of necessity, some other modality. Um, yeah, I mean, which I'm skeptical of, but I think that's just going to go down to, I don't want to debate <laughs> different senses necessity yeah yeah, yeah. Um, i mean um you know like i talk about metaphysical necessity and i don't talk much about logical modality because actually i think i guess i'm skeptical about that like actually i think like that there's there's not a clear distinction there it's not clear to me what logical necessity is other than metaphysical necessity and like and then if you if you try to explain what it is i think the explanation it's it's going to go around in a circle uh okay yeah can you well first i want to ask you like you, how much time do you want to oh continue uh, here? i don't want to ask too much we should be yeah we should be wrapping up pretty soon because it's been a couple of hours all right okay. I'll case, somebody last, else then. last thing that uh i wanted to ask you about is probably how do you think it is that we have moral knowledge because 
and especially in light of, I guess, the evolutionary debunking arguments. So I, there's a passage in moral intuitionism where you, ethical intuitionism, where you address this. Um, I don't know that I'm satisfied with the account that you gave, though. And so um, could you explain the evolutionary argument against uh, your view? And then perhaps could you uh, explain why you think it fails? Yeah, I mean, uh, I don't know. This could take a while. I mean, um, oh, so okay. I guess, like, so, so some people would say, well, like our um, our moral sense probably evolved by natural selection, and that means that we're probably just designed to um, to have moral beliefs that are adaptive, like that promote reproductive fitness, and um, that means that they're probably not reliable indi indicators of what's actually morally right or wrong if there is an objective right and wrong. Now, if you have like a subjectivist view of right and wrong or something, then you know, maybe you don't have this problem because like if the facts about what's right and wrong are just constituted by our conventions or like our whatever, our sensibilities or something, then no problem, like we can know what's right and wrong, right? But if there's like an objective truth independent of our attitudes and then, but our attitudes evolved, you know, for the purpose of um, reproductive fitness, then our attitudes probably don't track the objective truths. And so then you shouldn't trust your intuitions and then, you know, like you, whatever, then now you should be a moral skeptic or something, or you should be a subjectivist or relativist or something like this, right? So I think that's the basic evolutionary argument. Um, yeah, so I don't know, should I talk about what I don't like about that? Please do. I mean, yeah, I mean, um, like, so, the, the idea that our um, that our evaluative judgments are adaptations is just like not very well supported, right? So, um, and it, particularly if you look at the way that um, our evaluative beliefs have changed over time, uh, so they you know they've changed over the course of human history a lot, like pretty radically. So, like in ancient times, you know, people were doing stuff like forcing slaves to fight to the death for entertainment. <laughs> the gladiatorial combat and uh, nobody would entertain doing this today right and there's just like you know a whole bunch of things. slavery was widely practiced throughout human history in many different societies and like and now it's illegal in every country in the world there's been like a big shift in values there's even been a big shift in values in the last like 100 years uh, 100 years ago like women couldn't vote 200 years ago there were um there were basically no democracies like, and everybody thought that, I don't, I don't know everyone, but like many people thought democracy was obviously a bad idea. Like you need to have dictatorship or something like, okay. Even in the last 50 years, people's values have changed significantly because it was like, you know, all these Jim Crow laws and stuff like this. Okay. So you're like, um, yeah, evolution does not change that fast. Like, so this makes it not plausible that our current values are adaptations. Right. And so, like, I think that undermines the argument, you know, like the claim was that because our evaluative beliefs are adaptations, then, you know, you can't trust them. They probably just track reproductive fitness. But, you know, our current so we currently have much more liberal values than people had in the past. So are the liberal values adaptive or not? Say, so, well, if they're adaptive, then we should have had them in the past. If they're not adaptive, then you can't say that they're produced by evolution. Well, I mean, there's still going to be the intuitions. I, I, are, so are you saying the intuitions or, or really, I guess just psychology generally, right, is produced by evolution. I mean, we don't disagree with that. 
Yeah, I mean, like, you know, people evolved, including our brains. So like in some sense, right. everything that your brain does is a product of evolution, but not everything it does is an adaptation. Right. I understand that. So, so, okay. I don't know if, when I'm making the evolutionary debunking argument, I want to say that all intuitions are specifically adaptations. I guess I just have maybe the, the question really that it raises for me is why should we think that the evolutionary process would, uh, create cognitive faculties that would align with whatever the objective moral truths were like that just seems like it would be a big coincidence if it were the case given that uh moral facts don't causally impinge on the world like it makes sense to me to think that maybe evolution would give us good uh, an appreciation of mathematical facts because those might because there's some fundamental like uh point of ingress for mathematical truth directed faculties to have in the evolutionary scheme because at some point in the evolutionary um, development of our brains, like it might've been useful to, to understand basic logical ideas that have implications for, that we can extract the field of mathematics out of. And the same thing might be true for our, our perceptions or for memory or for, I don't know, yeah. um, so, whatever else. I mean, I, you know, I'm gonna say like that, kind of mathematics sounded suspiciously logicist which um you know which was rejected in the 20th century after Gödel's theorem and so but um like the okay broader problem like the people who give the evolutionary argument i think they don't they don't understand the realist view they think like the majority of realists are moral sense theorists okay so like this would be a good argument against the moral sense theory maybe like the moral sense theory is like there is a separate sense that that had would have to have evolved separately from all of our other cognitive faculties which is specifically about morality and i think there are actually very few moral realists have that view right most of them think that um like our moral knowledge comes from a broader sort of capacity for intellectual understanding that is not separate like like moral reasoning isn't separate from all the other kinds of reasoning okay which you know is similar to mathematics right like if you thought there had to be a separate mathematical sense then it's actually going to be pretty hard to explain why we have that because like people were not doing a lot of math in you know in the savannah or whatever right but um you know like if there's a general capacity for understanding abstractions or something like that uh, so there are um there are abstract objects, universals, and if you understand the nature of some abstract objects, then you're able to see certain necessary truths about them. This is, um, and this is like a general view about a priori knowledge. This is Bertrand Russell's view and my view, um, and you know, and like many rationalists. Uh, so um, you're like, uh, how how do we know that all bachelors are unmarried? That's because you understand the property of bachelorhood, like you understand what bachelorhood is and you understand what marriage is. And you, if you understand those, then you know they're incompatible. Okay, but that also applies to things like, um, how do we know that nothing is completely red and completely green? Well, you have to understand the nature of red and understand the nature of green. And if you understand those, then you can just see that they are not compatible. Okay, and then, um, there are also like, you know, moral properties that are universals, right? So, um, you know, maybe 
maybe if you understand the nature of suffering, then you understand that it's a bad making property. You understand suffering and you understand badness. Then you can see that suffering makes things bad, you know, prima facie or protonta or whatever. Right. And so, um, yeah, so like we had a general capacity for understanding universals and then like a general intelligence that enables you to see necessary truths about universals. Right. So like you didn't have to separately evolve a capacity for reasoning about the moral properties. You just have a general capacity for reasoning about abstract properties. Okay. Well, I, uh, I do have a follow-up question to that, but I don't know if I want to necessarily, I don't want to detain you for any longer. Right. Quick follow-up. Quick follow-up. Uh, okay. Yeah. So very quick follow-up. Um, why so is it could it be asked like why is it that you think that a general abstract knowledge of things would uh give us insight into moral properties if they existed um because they're properties too i guess okay uh, yeah, so, so why I mean, why would the general abstract reasoning abilities inc include like moral truths it might be a weird yeah. question but i mean you might ask and you know why would it include sets right? or whatever you know some other abstract mathematical objects, right? I don't know why wouldn't <laughs> it, right? Because like you, would, you have you know it's sort of like um, hey you know we you have this evolved capacity for vision. Why are we able to see the stars? Because that's useless. <laughs> you know, like the stars don't help you survive and reproduce. And then you know you oh, spend time gazing at them and wondering. Well, isn't it true that vision more generally is useful for reproduction? So it by so you're going to see things at optical infinity because they happen to also be things that can be seen. So it makes sense to me that a general capacity to see things would exist, and then that would have sort of an overreach into areas that are not yeah. relevant to survival and reproduction. But why think the same about morality? Um. Yeah, I mean, okay, you can see the stars because they're the same kind of thing as the things on Earth that you need to see in order to survive and reproduce. And like, you know, you can understand moral properties because they're the same kind of thing, namely universals that mm. you need to understand in order to survive and reproduce, you know, as like an intellectual species or something like this. So do you really think that's true that like moral properties are the same kind of thing as other kinds of things? I mean, they're, you know, like they're different, you know, everything is the same kind as something in some classification and a different kind in some other classification. <laughs> so they're, you know, they're abstractions, they're um, universals. There's the same kind of thing in that sense. Of course, the evaluative properties are evaluative and the descriptive properties are descriptive. So they're different kinds in that sense. Well, this is going to sound a little bit like the argument from weirdness, but I'm tempted to just say there's something really different, though, about the moral properties. Like they're not like yeah. I, some, somehow it seems very reasonable to me. It's like you know, part of it is you're saying you're not a moral sense theorist, but I kind of think you have to be because I just don't understand how like a general like the same cognitive structures that made it so that it was possible for me to understand math or to understand logic or to understand uh, or, or to take visual perceptions into account um, would also yeah. be the thing that gave me moral intuitions. Yeah, so I mean, is um, there an argument for that? Um, 
I don't know. Is there an argument against that? I mean, so, uh, um, I mean, so you might think, uh, I don't know, like just so if you give examples of other a priori knowledge and like you might think, well, it's plausible that those can be like those are examples of somebody understanding the nature of these properties and that these things are necessarily true in virtue of the nature of those properties. And then you might think like for some moral intuitive moral judgments, it, it just doesn't really seem like understanding the nature of the properties is enough. So, um, you know, like, uh, you're thinking about the organ harvesting and you're like, okay, I understand the nature of wrongness. I understand what wrongness is. I understand what organ harvesting is. And then, you know, you might question whether just like it's plausible that that understanding is the ground for saying that the organ harvesting is wrong. Now, so when you give these other examples, like, um, yeah, nothing can be completely red and completely green. And by the way, so like that's, you know, typically given as an example of a synthetic a priori truth um, by rationalists. Um, in that example, like it is plausible that 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 judgment results from understanding the nature of red and understanding the nature of green. <laughs> and then, okay, so like maybe you don't find it as plausible for the moral case. Um, there are at least some examples I think you will find plausible as just resulting from understanding the nature of the, the abstract, like whatever universals in question. So like uh, the transitivity of better than like if A is better than B and B is better than C, then A is better than C. So, so that's an evaluative judgment because it's a judgment about betterness. And, uh, but it's all, you know, most people find it plausible that that just results from understanding what better means. Or just kind of like, if you grasp betterness, you're going to see that it has to be transitive. All right, but anyway, so think about this. Um, um, you know, pain and suffering decreases your welfare. So like I claim, you can see that to be true by understanding the understanding what welfare is and understanding what suffering is. Now, okay, and then here's another thing. You know, you shouldn't make people worse off for no reason. And like, I think that judgment results from understanding worse off and understanding should, like, and reason, right? Like, like on the face of it, people being worse off is worse. Like that's intuitive in virtue of understanding what worse off and worse mean. And then, and you shouldn't make things worse if you don't have a reason to do that. I think that's like intuitive and understandable in virtue of understanding what should and worse mean. Right. And so, you know, like, uh, yeah. So, you know, if, if maybe you'll find those uh, intuitive examples of, you know, things that you could see to be true by just understanding these abstract objects. So do you think that a complete understanding of the, well, of all the abstract objects that are not moral abstract objects would then give you an insight into the abstract objects? Uh, not sure about that. Um, okay. <laughs> I mean, it is, so it is possible to have people who have um, normal understanding of descriptive facts, but um apparently no understanding of moral facts so so you know like i don't know about the hypothetical but we do have empirical evidence about that thing right Th these people are called psychopaths so like as far as we know they have a normal understanding of the descriptive facts of the world uh and like and like they don't have a um it's not that they don't know that other people suffer right like they can make correct judgments about when somebody's in pain or whatever 
but they don't they don't make correct moral judgments. Like there's pretty good arguments that they're they don't actually understand what moral concepts mean. Interesting. Because like, like they just have bizarre, <laughs> they will say occasionally just say bizarre things about moral concepts, right? Like there's an example where they're like, hey, you know, give they they ask the psychopath, you know, what's an example of like a really wrong thing? And the psychopath says, breaking bottles in the street. <laughs> and so it's like he doesn't know what wrong means he thinks wrong means it causes people to yell at you or something like that anyway anyway okay so that's possible that um and apparently the reason is that they're incapable of empathy and right so like a theory so i get this from my wife is for because um, she does more work on, you know, philosophy of psychology and psychiatry, um, this stuff about the psychopaths. Like apparently the reason they're not able to make moral judgments is that they're incapable of empathy. And apparently like by empathizing with other people, um, you learn to sort of step outside your own perspective and see the perspectives of other people. And then like the psychopaths just never do that. They never try to see anything. They're like maybe incapable of seeing anything from anyone else's point of view. And so like, and, uh, and what does this have to do with morality? Like, well, I mean, morality involves sort of taking into account everybody's point of view in a way that's sort of impartial. And you have to be capable of seeing things from somebody else's point of view in order to like impartially incorporate all the different points of view. Well, that was extraordinarily interesting. And I, I, again, I, you know, I just want to say thank you so much for uh, making yourself available to us. Uh, I'll probably send you an email about some other time, and I hope we can do this again. Thanks. It's been fun. You know, great to be here. And thank you so great much. Questions. I, I realized that I meant ardent and not strident. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. regards to your libertarianism. Right. <laughs> That's fair. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thank you. And I guess I'll just end by saying, can you please sign this book for me at some point? I hope we'll meet in person one day. But yeah, come to Denver sometime. All right. All right. Sounds really good. Okay. Have a good one. Thank you. All right. Well, you guys can stay on if you want to, but at some point I'm going to end this call. Um, but that was fun. I mean, what, do you guys think you'd be willing to do this again? Yeah, totally. Yeah, I think it needs like a refractory period, probably. Oh, yeah, definitely. Uh, yeah, do you think so? Jay, I have a question for you, which is like, um, you know, I think you make very high quality contributions. But then the thing is that I'm realizing high quality contributions might be undesirable because it's it, it it's so deep. There were so many details that were so like, just arcane and I didn't understand in the your engagement with Dr. Humor. So that in the future, if I'm doing this with the interest of making this like generally consumable content, I'm worried that it was uh I don't know, that it just wouldn't be engaging to people or valuable because they wouldn't be able to understand it. Or maybe they would just find it so boring they couldn't pay attention. But I feel bad saying that because it's like it should be that given that I'm interested in philosophy generally, why wouldn't I be really interested by like, especially good philosophy? But I don't know, I'm, I'm a little conflicted about that. Do you think it's possible to continue having these discussions at a very high level and for you to be a part of them? But um, I don't know, 
but with you finding a way to be more provocative and salacious and and dumber, like how do you feel about that? <laughs> how do you feel about being dumber? I mean, I felt like I I like I talked about rights at the beginning and talked about supervenience. I felt like I explained what they were and I asked him to explain his view. Like I don't know, it's hard for me to <laughs> like imagine how people who aren't familiar with these concepts perceive it but it's hard for you to understand the entertainment value of it because you're entertained by everything like you i've seen it's not an insult it's just a description of gay psychology like he's very open about this but he will spend hours and hours like reading and researching and writing about the most like incredibly meticulous and and like esoteric things and i want you to i really like i feel like you're the most likely of anyone on the call to 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 get Michael Humor into a corner and like actually make him think about something. But the problem is that I'm, I'm afraid of going too far there because well, I don't know. I don't want other people to be bored. What it, like, what do I do about that? No, I'm saying, so my, my, my question was, I was appreciative of that, of that concern, but I feel like, right, okay. like, what do you think was, like overly detailed or I don't know. I don't know, man. Using... It's more when you followed up with him, it eventually got to a point where it's like you guys are talking about something that I guess like people who aren't grad students wouldn't really understand. I don't know. Did anyone else are, feel like, like that? Which part of the conversation though? Like was it like the supervenience part? Because you mentioned like rights earlier, right? Yeah, it's probably supervenience and then probably when you guys there was some upper level going of, into the examples about like well, if you think this way about the logical truths, then you might talk about the semantic truths in these ways. And it was like, wait, does the supervenience go that way or does it go the other way? And like, oh, yeah, there's a true, lot, yeah. <laughs> like yeah, a lot so of what, different. What, exactly. I, I'm not at all saying, there. Jay, that I don't want you to do that. It's just maybe, can you find a way to give examples or, or good illustrations for people or like make it, kind of dumb it down just a little not i don't like i still want it to be substantial um for the other person who's who's taking the questions but also like i don't want i guess if people are like listening to it people to just check out because they get so confused or it's it's this impenetrable technicality you know what i mean yeah that i think the supervenience i was trying to pick which question to ask about moral realism supervenience one was probably kind of the most technical, we explained what it was, but if you're not, I guess, familiar with using it, it's difficult to aren't use it sense to you. <laughs> fluidly. <laughs> yeah. But well, I, feel, I feel like the, the first line of reasoning I was asking- You an example of it that was helpful to me when you said like semantics facts are uh, supervene on uh, something else because I can't remember like what it was Right, right. Because like what ha actually happens is something to do with what words mean, I think maybe is what he said. Um, yeah, one thing, I, oh, um, I one thing you could like if you want to upload these, and the concern is because, like, there are probably two concerns, right? You want to make sure the people that are doing this are actually like, like, enjoy it, and like, shackling someone from not talking about lots of stuff they like probably won't like to make sure they don't enjoy it. We also want it to be like entertaining. Um, so, like, one thing you can do, like, some YouTube videos will have like little pop ups of while people are talking, like. A little wiki like summary of some concept that's maybe novel to the people looking that's at a good it. idea if you want to actually like do some editing we upload these things 
if like I the first lane of questioning it. wasn't that technical. I don't know what's, what's your perception. I was asking about his like uh, views on right. I think, it was, I think it was a little technical because like the nature of the nature of the line of inquiry kind of became what even are rights? What is rights talk? What do rights amount to? Uh, which was which was the which was basically the question you were asking, like what's your account of rights? But I think that is a technical question. Well, like, right? like most people when they think about rights, don't talk about like the metaphysics of rights. They talk about like, you know, what rights do you actually have? They just engage in rights talk. So I think it's just fundamentally a technical question. I don't know that it's inappropriate. I think it is appropriate to ask of like a political philosopher, what do you think about rights? But it is a technical question. It's not like a fun question. Well, I mean, he gave an, well, the answer he gave was like, rights are deontological constraints, which are enforceable. So I think that's, I mean, should be easy to understand, I think. <laughs> so like the line of inquiry and the responses, I feel like should be understandable to most people. And then I was mainly trying to ask him like, if he could give a, general account of rights, like what our rights are, if there's a principle that can explain that, and then what particular cases about property rights. Um, I mean, like, to be fair, I feel like I also asked like really, really technical questions, right? Like, no one knows what disjunctivism is in philosophy perception, or like, um, like, if I say, like, Morian shift, that's not a term most people know. I thankfully, like, it became something very understandable, because, like, oh, here's a hand, and someone's like, does the world exist? Like, no, nah, I got a hand. Got to do it. Um, but, like, for some of the answers, like, the philosophy of perception one, I think, was kind of inaccessible to. Yeah, I didn't understand your I didn't understand your question at all, but I understood his answers. So, <laughs> like, it made sense. Yeah, so it's I just, like wasn't, I just wasn't familiar with that uh, branch of philosophy. So, I think part of it too is on like the person responding to make it accessible, and not just like the person that's asking a question. Because you can ask technical questions and get very accessible answers. Yeah. And I've seen, uh, what does he, does he like to be called Mike, Dr. Humor? <laughs> he never, he never, I don't know. Preference, but yeah, I don't know. Oh, I'll, I'll be right back. He signed off his emails as, I mean, it, first of all, his email is called Owl. So there's, there's that. But that's his uh, personal, his original, like, webpage is like owl32.net or something like yeah. that. Yeah. Uh, so he signed off his email saying MH. Mm -hmm. So I'm not sure. Uh, well, so uh, if you look at some of the AMAs that he's done with like, on like libertarian discords and stuff like that, uh, when someone asks a technical question, they'll sometimes say like, oh, like you might need, you might want to explain that. And then the person who asked will like give an account, like give their understanding of it. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it, apologies for, I, like, what I'm asking is kind of a dumb question, but it's just because I'm an amateur and I want to get good at this. I'm hoping to find, I'm, I'm hoping to train myself so eventually I get to a point where I can perfectly navigate the balance between the, the substantiveness of the conversation for people at almost any level of understanding and then the, like, general entertainment and accessibility. Um, but this is what's going to happen to the video. I'm going to I'm going to try to edit out any identifying details 
So the introductions and stuff are just going to consist of Michael Humer answering his introduction question. And then, or, well, actually, I don't even think I did that. I just gave him an introduction. But, uh, and then I'm going to probably give this video chapter titles on YouTube, if you've seen that before. And then I'm going to rearrange the discussion so it goes from least technical to most technical stuff so people can start in the shallow end of the pond. So maybe like when we talked about like love potions or when we talked about like um, whatever, I, there, free will maybe was a little less dense. But then when it gets to like Cameron's question about phenomenal conservatism or uh, Jay's line of questioning on rights talk and, uh, and on... Um, on moral realism like that's probably going to go toward the other side yeah i mean um sorry i just jumped in so i might be out of context now um one thing i'm just thinking about is like if you want to have something entertaining usually like people like youtubers tiktokers will record a big session and then just like take